Chapter Fifteen of Life in the Grey Nunnery at Montreal. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Life in the Grey Nunnery at Montreal by Sarah J. Richardson. Chapter Fifteen. Choice of Punishments. On our arrival at the nunnery, I was left alone for half an hour. Then the bishop came in with the lady superior, and the abbess who had charge of the kitchen when I left. The bishop read to me three punishments of which he said I could take my choice. First, to fast five days in the fasting room. Second, to suffer punishment in the lime room. Third, to fast four days in the cell. As I knew nothing of these places, except the cell. A priest was directed to take me to them, that I might see for myself, and then take my choice. At first I thought I did not care, and I said I had no choice about it, but when I came to see the rooms I was thankful that I was not allowed to abide by that decision. Certainly I had no idea what was before me. I was blindfolded, and taken to the lime room first. I think it must have been situated at a great distance from the room we left, for he led me down several flights of stairs and through long, low passages where it was impossible to stand erect. At length we entered a room where the atmosphere seemed laden with hot vapour. My blinder was removed, and I found myself in a pleasant room some fifteen feet square. There was no furniture of any kind, but a wide bench fastened to the wall extended round three sides of the room. The floor looked like one solid block of dark-coloured marble, not a crack or seam to be seen in it, but it was clouded, highly polished, and very beautiful. Around the sides of the room a great number of hooks and chains were fastened to the wall, and a large hook hung in the centre overhead. Near the door stood two men, with long iron bars, some two inches square, on their shoulders. The priest directed me to stand upon the bench, and turning to the men, he bade them raise the door. They put down their bars, and I suppose touched a concealed spring, for the whole floor at once flew up and fastened to the large hook overhead. Surprised and terrified, I stood wondering what was to come next. At my feet yawned a deep pit, from which arose a suffocating vapour, so hot it almost scorched my face, and nearly stopped my breath. The priest pointed to the heaving, tumbling billows of smoke that were rolling below, and asked, How would you like to be thrown into the lime? Not at all, I gasped, in a voice scarcely audible. It would burn me to death. I suppose he thought I was sufficiently frightened, for he bade his men close the door. This they did by slowly letting down the floor, and I could see 
that it was in some way supported by the chains attached to the walls, but in what manner I did not know. I was nearly suffocated by the lime smoke that filled the room, and though I knew not what was in reserve for me, I was glad when my blinder was put on, and I was led away. I think we returned the same way we came, and entered another room where the scent was so very offensive that I begged to be taken out immediately, even before my eyes were uncovered and I knew nothing of the loathsome objects by which we were surrounded, I felt that I could not endure to breathe an atmosphere so deadly. But the sight that met my eyes when my blinder was removed, I cannot describe, nor the sensations with which I gazed upon it. I can only give the reader some faint idea of the place, which, they said, was called the fasting-room and here incorrigible offenders fasted until they starved to death. Nor was this all. Their dead bodies were not even allowed a decent burial, but were suffered to remain in the place where they died until the work of death was complete, and dust returned to dust. Thus the atmosphere became a deadly poison to the next poor victim who was left to breathe the noxious effluvia of corruption and decay. I am well aware that my reader will hardly credit my statements, but I do solemnly affirm that I relate nothing but the truth. In this room were placed several large iron kettles, so deep that a person could sit in them, and many of them contained the remains of human beings. In one, the corpse looked as though it had been dead but a short time. Others still sat erect in the kettle, but the flesh was dropping from the bones. Every stage of decay was here represented, from the commencement till nothing but a pile of bones was left of the poor sufferer. Conceive, if you can, with what feelings I gazed upon these disgusting relics of the dead. Even now my blood chills in my veins as memory recalls the fearful sight, or as in sleep I live over again the dread realities of that hour. Was I to meet a fate like this? I might perchance escape it for that time, but what assurance had I that I was not ultimately destined to such an end. These thoughts filled my mind, as I followed the priest from the room, and for a long time I continued to speculate upon what I had seen. They called it the fasting room, but if fasting were the only object, why were they placed in those kettles, instead of being allowed to sit on chairs or benches? or even on the floor, and why placed in iron kettles? Why were they not made of wood? It would have answered the purpose quite as well if fasting or starvation were the only objects in view. Then came the fearful suggestion, were these kettles ever heated? And was that floor made of stone or iron? 
The thought was too shocking to be cherished for a moment, but I could not drive it from my mind. I was again blindfolded and taken to a place they called a cell, but it was quite different from the one I was in before. We descended several steps as we entered it, and instead of the darkness I anticipated, I found myself in a large room with sufficient light to enable me to see every object distinctly. One end of a long chain was fastened around my waist, and the other firmly secured to an iron ring in the floor. But the chain, though large and heavy, was long enough to allow me to go all over the room. I could not see how it was lighted, but it must have been in some artificial manner, for it was quite as light at night as in the day. Here were instruments of various kinds, the use of which I did not understand, some of them lying on the floor, others attached to the sides of the room. One of them was made in the form of a large fish, but of what material I do not know. It was of a bright flesh color and fastened to a board on the floor. If I pressed my foot upon the board, it would put in motion some machinery within, which caused it to spring forward with a harsh, jarring sound like the rumbling of the cars. At the same time, its eyes would roll round and its mouth open, displaying a set of teeth so large and long that I was glad to keep at a safe distance. I wished to know whether it would really bite me or not, but it looked so frightful I did not dare to hazard the experiment. Another so nearly resembled a large serpent, I almost thought it was one, but I found it moved only when touched in a certain manner. Then it would roll over, open its mouth, and run out its tongue. There was another that I cannot describe, for I never saw anything that looked like it. It was some kind of machine, and the turning of a crank made it draw together in such a way that if a person were once within its embrace, the pressure would soon arrest the vital current and stop the breath of life. Around the walls of the room were chains, rings, and hooks, almost innumerable, but I did not know their use and feared to touch them. I believed them all to be instruments of torture, and I thought they gave me a long chain in the hope and expectation that my curiosity would lead me into some of the numerous traps the room contained. Every morning the figure I had seen beside the dying nun, which they called the devil, came to my cell, and unlocking the door himself, entered and walked around me, laughing heartily and seeming much pleased to find me there. He would blow white froth from his mouth, but he never spoke to me, and when he went out, he locked the door after him and took away the key. He was, in fact, very thoughtful and prudent, 
but it will be long before I believe that he came as they pretended from the spirit world. So, far from being frightened, the incident was rather a source of amusement. Such questions as the following would force themselves upon my mind. If that image really is the devil, where did he get that key? And what will he do with it? Does the devil hold the keys of this nunnery so that he can come and go as he pleases? Or are the priests on such friendly terms with his satanic majesty that they lend him their keys? Or do they hold them as partners? Gentlemen of the Grey Nunnery, please tell us how it is about those keys. End of chapter 15